for me, what I've learned through therapy and just growth in general the is that the question of when we go there, you are is what we're going to find better than what you're leaving? I think find. men have a much harder time, mm-hmm. just culturally and, and gender-wise. I think men have I've never been, you know, maybe. Hello there. I'm Yonka Kamara. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries, where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. I'm telling you this story, but I I never, ever, ever, ever have to relive that story again. You're supposed to be able to work through it, play through it. So I think that has been an Hey, y'all. You are in for a treat this week. Today, we have a lively and hilarious conversation with comedian and fellow podcaster, Mika Mo. In our conversation, Mika gets real about her comedic journey. She opens up about her childhood, constantly being teased, and how she went from using humor as a weapon to defend herself to now using it as a tool to relate, heal, and bring joy to others. We also talk about owning your identity, and taking your craft seriously. Mika's jovial spirit is contagious, and I hope you laugh as much as I did while recording this episode. This was the very first episode we've recorded in person in a very long time. The last time we recorded in person was season one, episode three, I believe. And that was because it was right before lockdown. And so being in person was very special and so much fun. And the energy, you, I hope you guys notice the difference in the energy when you're in person. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the podcast. I know that some platforms are now saying follow instead of subscribe. It's the same thing and it's free. And also please leave us a review if you've not already done so it really helps us get more ears on this incredible platform. I hope you agree. And lastly, I want you to keep the conversation going in the comment section of the website at kumehouse.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts and any gems you've taken away from this episode. So now without further ado, here's our conversation with Mika Mo. This is the first recording in person. I can't believe it. And I am joined today by Mika Mo. She's a comedian. She's a fundraiser. She's a she's a lot of different things, <laughs> as you will find out. But most of all, she's a friend of mine and um, also a Astoria resident and yeah. also an LIC native, right? I'm an Astoria native. Astoria native. Okay. Yes. Look at that. Astoria native. <laughs> so excited to have her. As I said before, she's the first guest I have in person, recording in person. I haven't been able to do that since season one, episode three. So this is this is a milestone. This is a very important like milestone in the pandemic to be able to be in person and record. So thank you for making time to come. I hope you enjoy the meal I made. <laughs> uh, no, first of all, well, thank you so much. You you guys aren't here right now, but uh, Yelka made an amazing meal. I mean, eggs, bacon, all the things. <laughs> uh, we were drinking mimosas. Now we're here with our mint water, super fancy. 
Um, yes, thank you so much for lunch. And I'm happy to be the first. Like, so you've been recording all throughout the Covina. Yes, Covina. <laughs> Covina. I like that better. Okay. We've been calling it all kinds of names. Covina. Yes. Mm-hmm. We've been recording all throughout Covina. And um, we started in, we just celebrated one year. I can't believe wow, it. Congrats. In August, on August 18th, made it one year wow. since our first episode dropped. And now we're season three and you are here and recording in person. Yay. So- I'm, I'm happy to be the first. Yeah. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back and, to you. Oh, also, she's a podcast host. So, yes, uh, I do have a podcast with a man named Jeff Waters. It's called We're Done Here. It's an emotional comedy podcast. I feel like we're more heavy than uh, funny. But if you want to cry, please listen to us. <laughs> well, I, I think this podcast is also the same. You know, okay. I don't think we're not have we. I think we make people laugh. There are okay. moments of laughter mm-hmm. and humor, but most of it, it is it is heavy, but I think it's also light in the sense that you end up leaving the show feeling inspired, feeling empowered, and feeling like you have what you need to move forward. I like that. It's, it's very Super Soul Saturday with Yelka <laughs> yes, yeah, as opposed super to Sunday. Soul <laughs> so where do we begin with you? I don't know. I mean, you you know me, so it's different. Okay. <laughs> Where do you want to begin? Okay, so something I recently learned about Mika through listening to her show. Can you repeat the name of the, your show again? Uh, it's, Pod- it's called We're Done Here. We're Done Here. Was that she actually started therapy when she was very, very young. Very know, true. Her, her mother put her in therapy, and then she later went on her own. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about... What led your mother to put you in therapy? Um, so my parents um, were divorced. Uh, I, I was considered, I don't know, they say I was a problematic kid, but essentially I acted the same way I act now. But those teachers, you know, they couldn't handle me. Um, so my mom just put me in therapy to ensure I was okay. Um, and essentially I was in therapy from about, God, how long was I in therapy? From age six uh, to about 10, yeah. Wow. Therapy for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. What, what can you recall how you felt going to therapy at that such a young age? I was not paying attention to what those ladies were saying. They were making me play with blocks and like I was painting. I was just talking to, you know, some white woman every week for an hour and doing whatever I wanted to do. And they would make assessments uh, when I was younger, uh, I guess because I had behavioral issues. Honestly, I was just singing to myself and having a good time. But whatever, the teachers were hating. Uh, they, they, tra- were. They, they were. They were, were. definitely <laughs> hating. Um, so my second grade teacher, I say she was a racist. Uh, she tried to put me in a special ed. Mm. But my mom was like a stereotypical black... Well, she wasn't... Maybe she wasn't a stereotypical black mama, but she always had my back. That's all I know. And she was all like, not my baby. And she was like, test my baby. She was like, my baby's well adjusted. And essentially, um, after the test, they found out that I was... I guess I was bored, apparently. Mm. So if I'm bored, I am going to start singing and doing other things because, like, I didn't need that level of instruction. So I was in therapy, and what they did in school um, to control my behavior was they would uh, make me spend certain periods of time with younger children uh, because apparently, I guess if I felt I was... um, taking care of others, I behave better. Mm. I don't know. Anyway, so an alternative to putting a black child in special ed as that white teacher wanted, my mom just came up with alternatives and she was right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Helping others help you. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. I don't know what it was. Maybe I was just like, these children are little, but I felt, I just behaved better when I was, I don't know, with, Younger children helping them. Hmm. My behavior, I, I guess, I don't know. I was you were being responsible. I was being responsible. And as the only child, that was important maybe hmm. to me, for me. 
So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. You know, I there is a statistic. I can't remember the number, but there is a high statistics of um, black children being placed into special ed classes. Most definitely, they 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 place us into special ed. They um they. Yeah, they they demonize us. They it's just more punishment. With everything being black, there's more punishment. So um, I went to school in Astoria. Shout out to PS one twenty two, Mammy Faye Elementary School. Um, and essentially, it was a it was a decent school, or whatever. But there weren't many black children in the school, and they just could not stop saying my name and how horrible I was. But my mom was not here for it. Yeah. Well, shout out to your mama for having your back and fighting for you. It's so important when parents, especially black parents, mm-hmm. can fight for their children in the school system. And I know it's 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 hard, right? Because yeah. there's so much we have to work through in order to get to a place where we can fight for our children because we have to have fight for ourselves. Yes. But I also remember my parents being those type of parents who had our back and fought for us. Like, you know, my younger brother would have issues at school and my dad, my parents would go to the school. And I remember for parent-teacher conference and they would say, what did you do to trigger mm. my child? That's the right you know, question. Because my child is not going to behave this way just because they, you did something. And oftentimes children don't know how to articulate what they're feeling. And yes. so acting out is one way they articulate. They're, they're feeling something. It needs to get out. Yes. You know? And Very so true. tell me the situation so I can better understand what caused my child to behave that way. Yes. And I think true. that's so, so powerful. And I'm forever grateful to, to have seen that and to see that at a young age, to see my parents have my back um, in those types of environments. You know, another thing they always said was like, we don't believe in embarrassing our children in front of people. Mm. You're like, you go home, you get spanked. Yeah, <laughs> but for sure. In I- front of people, you're not going to be embarrassed. And I think that's a powerful thing. You know, like as black people, we we have we come across so many situations we where we are made to feel less than mm-hmm. and so to have a position when you're young for your parents to be like i'm not going to make you feel less than in front of this person you know is a powerful thing so shout out again to your mom yeah. so that happened mm-hmm. and then what eventually led you to stop going to therapy at the age of 10? Um, I think I just got older. I think by the time I was in fifth grade, I actually had a really good teacher. His name is Mr. Kaufman. I don't know if he's still at PS122, <laughs> uh, but he was a good teacher. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, my behavior shifted. I just grew up a little bit and I managed to not um, act like a crazy person um, in class and start singing to myself. So I just didn't really need therapy as much anymore. My behavior just in, got better as I got older, mm, I think. You were better able to self-manage, maybe. Maybe, yeah, better able to self-manage. It, it doesn't mean I wasn't still, like, a horror to teachers. <laughs> like, I was, I was like, I was like, I was just a, I was just a kid um, marching to my own drum. Yes. I did what I want. I, it's literally the same personality. Same. You are. But same. you know what? That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You're in a, you, you are a person who have a very strong sen- sense of self. Yes. You know yourself. You know, you're not influenced by wanting to be like anybody else. So I think that's beautiful. So I can't help but to think that has influenced you wanting to be a comedian. You know what? Yeah, I've always been, I've always loved to laugh and I've always been funny in a sense. So that was the problem in school. I was too busy thinking about jokes, making fun (laughs) of people, laughing at people. Like I was spending my days thinking about things that were funny is it was very distracting it's still distracting yeah C- can you tell us about a moment in school when 
where you you can think back like, oh my goodness, like somebody laughed at a joke, something you made where you're like, oh yes, I'm, a, I'm good. Um, you, uh, I mean, every day I was constantly <laughs> laughing. First of all, I, I laughed a lot. I was always in the back of the class, like figuring out what was funny and laughing to myself about it. <laughs> but I would just go up to people and say crazy things. Like I would go up to teachers and be like, miss, don't be getting mad at me just because you prejudice or like something <laughs> crazy like that. That's or, bold. I, I was a bold child and my mom taught me, she should have never taught me that big word anyway. <laughs> Prejudice. Because like that was the end of it. As soon as I like turned five, I was running around saying that word to everyone. That was my favorite word to say. So there was a whole prejudice thing and everyone just started laughing because it was classic Mika. <laughs> um, and just like, I don't know, doing all types of things, playing pranks, uh, pulling things off people's heads, uh, like not like but pulling hats off people's heads, laughing at them. Yeah. I would do, and I had jokes for just, I would call people, I call people horrible names. Like you always had to have a nickname. I could never call you your actual name. Wow. It was just the way I operated. How I felt about the person, that would be their nickname. Yeah. You briefly mentioned that your your mom put you in therapy after your parents divorced, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Was comedy or humor or making fun was that a form of coping maybe I don't you know what's so interesting so I both my parents are very funny in their own way Mm. my mom's a silly person uh and my dad's funny in the sense that he's always making fun of people so it was like a I came from a humorous people so Mm. I will say that um but in terms of coping definitely in school people were constantly making fun of me I like hit I like I think I finished growing at like I don't know like probably by the time I was 10 I was probably like 5'8 already girl me too I was the height that I am I'm 5'8 I was that in fifth grade yeah so you (laughs) so like I was a I was a big kid to say the least I was a chubby kid as well um people make it also I'm African half African so they call me African booty scratcher Mm. there was I think it more or less of a coping mechanism it was more of a defense mechanism Mm. because it's like I first well also and also I'm a silly person so I'm automatically laughing at people to myself anyway. But of course, if someone says something to you, you're going to go after them and say something. So I would get in trouble a lot for defending myself, if Mm. you will. I remember um, amongst my friends, because I... I still live in the story, so I still have a lot of the same friends. One of my friends was calling to like, oh, Mika, you were kind of a bully. And my other friend was like, uh-uh, Mika wasn't a bully. She was always defending herself. So if someone did something to her, she would get them back. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, through humor. Through humor. Yeah. Through, yeah, just through like, I would make fun of you yeah. because you made fun of me. And just because my jokes are better, it doesn't mean <laughs> that. <laughs> Mine was more memorable. It hit exactly. harder. It hit harder. So it's not me being a bully. It's just me, you know, having a better punchline. Yeah. Sorry. Wow. Yeah. Can you remember a moment where you, like a particular punchline where you're like, wow, that's not only is that good, but you recognize the power of humor so, as, a def- as, as a way to defend yourself. It's interesting because growing up in the New York City school system, um, it's all a, there's there, we have a playground culture, of course. Oh yes. <laughs> so it's it's not like I personally, uh, you know, thought that humor was powerful. It it was it obviously was was powerful. We spent our days making fun of each other, and essentially you won by having the better punchline. So basically, everyone would talk about someone's shoes or someone's clothes. Actually, um, there's a young man I grew up with. Um, shout out to John Lopez. <laughs> 
John, if you're listening, yeah, he's a, he's a he's a he's a great friend. But it's 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 funny because it's one of those legendary jokes or what have you. Because um, we were walking down the street, like you know how city kids do. We all walk from school mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, this was like in elementary school, only a few blocks away from our houses. So he was making fun of my friend. She had glasses on. He was calling her, saying her glasses were medicated glass, like Medicaid, like yeah, like her mama was on Medicaid. You got yeah, Medicaid yeah. glasses, and so you know being the New York City kid I am it wasn't actually the joke I was this kind of I said something that I was like you know what you are Medicaid I was like that's your name from now on you will be Medicaid so until this day we call this man <laughs> Medicaid because I I literally could not even remember his name I was like wait what's his real name because I still call him Medicaid to this day oh so like I mean the jokes would just go on for years, years. just be an ongoing really kind of thing it's just you know how kids are. You know how yeah, New York City yeah. is. It's like, that's how we do it. He, he, he loves the name. I remember when I, I turned like, I don't know, maybe my 20s. I was like, he's like, you're not calling me Medicaid anymore. I was like, you're a dad. Are we, are we still going <laughs> to, you know? <laughs> what was his reaction when he first called him that? It was kind of, well, it wasn't. So we all walked in like these groups of tons of kids. So it was all like, oh, you are Medicaid. <laughs> so it was just like a group. And like, of course he was embarrassed or something, but basically I berated him with the name for years and yeah. he just had to accept it. That yeah. was the neighborhood, you know, term for him. For very long. <laughs> wow. so it wasn't the funniest joke, but it was the most long, the most longest jo- running joke I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. I would not want you to give me a name. <laughs> You know, when you when you just said that name, I'm also thinking about nicknames I had as a kid. I was born in Sierra Leone, yes, but I grew up here in New York yeah. City in Jackson Heights. But before, when I was back home in Sierra Leone, my nickname, just for being skinny, I was mm. called Drybonga. Drybonga ah. is the name of a fish. <laughs> it's a dry fish. It has no meat. It's just dry. And you just put in food to season your food, like for flavor, but it has nothing. So it's like, you know, like I think Spanish people, they sometimes used to call me flaca. Yes, you know, for being skinny, you no, know, it's like sure. your name, oh, your flaca friend, you know. Yeah. So um, I was wondering if that was also influenced, like your your ability to just give somebody a name. Yeah, comes from that his that that tradition, you know, because no, you, you are a Liberian. Yes, I, I'm I'm part Liberian, part Black American. You know, I never really thought about it, but yes, we are always giving people nicknames. <laughs> it's a constant thing. Like we constantly. So my stepmom, she actually, I don't know. One time I ate this whole cake, and like I wasn't supposed to eat it, and she was like, "Why'd you eat this cake, Mika?" <laughs> and I was like, "There's a special taste in my mouth that makes me eat." She always talks about it, <laughs> and she called me special taste for years. So yeah, it has. To, and my dad calls my my cousin who killed the first cat. So yes. <laughs> Just for no reason. Just call yeah. people things. I don't know, because he looks scary. Whatever. He killed a cat. But essentially, <laughs> yeah, for being Liberian, yeah, we call people names all the time. Yeah. Like in Black American culture, we call people nicknames. But I think, like, I don't know, something about being Liberian, particularly, it's about a situation. Mm. And then you name people and that's it. And you tell mm. that story. I call them this because X, Y, Z. That's true. Yeah, and that's the name. True. You know, and that's, that's your name. And it's always a story. It's always a story. It's, it's always, always a connected. story. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess that is why I call that kid Medicaid. And <laughs> the various other names I made up throughout the years. <laughs> so, um, one thing I was just thinking about, even just the name calling, right? And how we name people. Mm-hmm. It's also based on circumstances. Yes. Right? And so, like, Medicaid is based on what 
your circumstances were and what you know people around you their yeah. circumstances so it came natural yeah it came right? na- it came na- i mean we're from all from queens like yeah. i mean we grew up it was a very mixed income area per se but not that mixed you were either poor and on welfare or you were like lower middle class because it's queens and that's what it was so when you when you said someone's glasses are medicaid like you're basically saying you're you're saying they're poor right mm. it was like a funny thing to say mm. and when you call somebody um, medicaid you're like yeah you're you actually are poor for, and like this is your whole existence so f- mm. for sure it was a socioeconomic issue um growing up in queen not issue but you know circumstance but yeah it's interesting i guess like yeah we never really felt uh impoverished per se but we definitely were not affluent mm. but we never wanted for anything it was weird i don't know hmm. tell tell me more about your childhood oh so i love my childhood it was really fun <laughs> <laughs> Growing up here in Astoria, um, basically, we I, I rolled with a crew of people my whole entire life. As we always did. Uh, as we always did. Um, <laughs> they used to call us like the UN. The, you know, we had we had somebody. No from, way. My group was also like the oh, UN. Girl, you know, <laughs> well, it's Queens. It's Queens, you, so you it has really to be UN. But the only reason why they called us that is because we had an Asian girl. Unnecessary. If we didn't have the Asian girl, we would not be considered the UN. Because usually <laughs> in Queens, like the Asians hang out by themselves. They don't yeah. integrate. So as soon as um, my one Korean friend integrated our group it was like oh now you're the UN it's like we have every race and culture here but we got an Asian girl now we're the UN anyway we just walk around causing trouble we were troublemakers essentially like horrible through humor just like no uh, through humor through doing bad things just being ridiculous like uh we were the kind of kids that would like you know go we we would we were we were we were we were young kids so we would do tons of horrible things to people Mm. so we would like uh you know knock on people's doors and run pranks yeah pranks innocent pranks no we've done bad pranks like we 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 would i remember one night this is very bad we peed in people's shampoos Okay. And put it back in the... No, we were horrible kids. <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. We were not the best kids at all. We would just do prank after prank after prank. Throw rocks at people's... Like, we were having a great time. We would yeah. jump around in buildings. We were like, running around. We basically spent every day in Astoria Park uh, acting crazy... Um, it was New York, so you had to hide from the police to, if they were going to catch you doing something. Maybe we were drinking 40s or doing something stupid in the mm. park. Like, I don't know. We were kids, so we felt like we owned the world. We would take the train occasionally. Mm. Uh, we would go to different nearby parks and mix and mingle with other neighborhood children. But it was fun. I spent most of my time um, in my friends' houses, essentially. And, and my mom was the only mom growing up that actually spoke English. Mm. So every time I went to someone else's house, it was like, you know, you're going into a different country, right? I went to my Latina friend's house. She had like all her aunts and cousins living there, but they always had good food and like pots of rice and pork or whatever we'd eat there. Then I went to my Asian friend's house. They ate with chopsticks, so much kimchi everywhere. That was... I was like, why is there so much kimchi? Then went to my Greek friend's house. Their parents were racist. Like, it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you get to, I think that's the beauty of growing up in, in Queens. Mm-hmm. You know, like my earliest memories um, from school is having kids. Like I had a friend from Georgia, mm-hmm. like the country Georgia. Oh, yeah. I had friends from Bangladesh. Yeah. I had friends from Colombia. I had friends from Chile. I had like from all over the world, you know, and we were all making sense of what it meant to be in America. Yes, that's true. You know? That is true. And navigating that, you know? And and, um, I think it was also a very special time because it's almost like we were in a cocoon. Mm -hmm. Like, we, obviously we knew we're all different. Yeah. But at the same time, we hadn't like, 
been indoctrinated into American ideas of no. racism yet mm-hmm. yes, that true. we were able to really see each other and be with one another. I mean, some of our, the parents still had their issues, yeah, right? Yeah, the parents, like you go over and you feel it. Yeah. You know, but the kids were like, they were still cool with you. Because oftentimes some of them, like they were born and raised here. Yeah. But they still had accents. Yes, <laughs> you know no, what I mean? Like English was like their second language. Yeah. So it's like they were those things that they could pick on you for being different, they couldn't pick on you because they were still also They were also different, different, yeah. You know? And so that made you a commonality, you know? And so for some of their parents, like, oh, as long as you are respectful, like, you know, you come in and you say hi to them, they're like, you... You're great. Like you're yeah. fine. My books. You know. Yeah. Like, no. That's most, it. Mo- most definitely. No. It's interesting. I didn't meet my first um, American. Actually, she's still a, a decent friend. She lives in Spain now. Oddly, um, but I met her. I think I was nine years old, mm. and I was just kind of like, "Well, what nationality are you?" And she's like, "I'm white American." I'm like, "No. Like, where are your parents from?" And like, it was like the rever- you know when people ask where you're really from, it was a reverse of that to a mm. white American person. I was like, "No. Where are you from?" She's like, "Well, I think I'm German." Some American some and some person goes she's a white American I was like that's a thing I didn't know existed I Mm. thought it was I just didn't understand the concept I was like a white American weird I knew black Americans because I was black American (laughs) but like I was like white people are American I was like oh so weird I just thought everyone was from somewhere else yeah yeah just growing up in Queens Mm -hmm. can you tell us about how you continue to maintain this sense of humor yeah so um I guess I make my friends laugh. I'm always saying something crazy. Uh, it's interesting. When I got into the workforce, it was something that, I don't know, some jobs, it worked at Robinhood, of course. We worked together. <laughs> but we didn't work together at Robinhood, but we both worked at Robinhood Foundation because everyone there is quirky. Um, but some places it didn't work. Like, because mm. I would, uh, I remember I had a job and my manager was asking me a question. She was asking me something about, um, like, I have this thing where I mimic people, how they sound. <laughs> and like, she was telling me to recap a conversation for her. And I was like, well, so-and-so walked in and was like, bee, 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 bee. you know how they do. And then the other person was like, bee, bee, they said this. Like, bee. And like, I was, she was like, I don't like the way you're describing this to me. Like she was very offended by it. Mm. So basically I, I spend my life just, I don't know. I just, I'm, I am myself. People laugh at me. I was always being laughed. You know, when you're like, People are laughing with me and at me constantly. It's just yeah. a constant motion throughout my whole entire life. Did that affect you in any way? Did that make you feel? No, because I like laughing too. So it was mm-hmm. like more like, uh, basically I would come into places like, it's like maybe I would take things a bit off kilter, but I'm trying to experience joy, right? Mm, <laughs> like, I love that. We're just going and, you know, seeing what's funny, not necessarily thinking about it, but like, oh, why is that? Why is that? tree sitting in the corner why is that man dressed like that oh my god did you see did you see those shoes those are like christmas shoes or something just any stupid thing that pops in your head right yeah, yeah. so i would just walk into every situation like that i never knew i didn't think it was connected to comedy or anything i just it was just the way my personality was mm. so when that particular supervisor said that to you oh yeah did that change how you interacted in the workplace I just said, I was like, I guess I can't make um, impressions of people. I was like, oh, so uncool. But no, it didn't change the way I act. Because <laughs> I'm incapable of changing. So I just carried on doing what I was doing. Yeah. Did, do, do you have any other experience of where you felt like people appreciated your humor in a workplace? Oh, anywhere, anywhere I work um, that is cool, <laughs> which is so silly to say. Um, but people love, people usually love my humor. They love when I come in, they're like, Tamika comes in with a bright personality and she's very happy and all these things. Oh, 
Tamika. Mika. <laughs> she wants to go by her nickname. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they like people love it. People yeah. love it. I never that that rarely happens where someone feels like threatened by how I'm speaking or something like that. And also, usually I'm pretty professional. But like, if I, you know, we work in uh, fundraising. Philanthropy. Yeah, philanthropy. So essentially, it's a part of the job, right? People, mm-hmm. you want your person that you're connected to to be uplifting and fun and have a good time. It's the reason why, you know, I'm good at my job. So, yeah. 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 Can you tell us of a moment of a particular maybe joke you might have said where you felt like people got it and they're, they they saw you as a humorous person? I mean, is it like every day? Um <laughs> I feel like that happens all the time. Like a Medicaid kind of story. Oh, let's see. Let's let's just do a mind a mind thing for a medic. I mean, it always happens constantly. Uh, I'm trying to think of one particular instance. I mean, so I have a tendency, especially when I worked at Robinhood. You know how we have the open desk mm-hmm. format or what have you. I actually have a tendency to talk to myself. And like, I just carry on conversations with myself. It's just, you won't notice unless like you really pay attention to me. But essentially you might think I'm working, but I'm talking myself through a project. (laughs) So I have a tendency to do that. Um, My boss sat right next to me and it was an ongoing joke for her. Like, oh, Mika's talking to herself again, whatever. Um, So I said, I yelled at one time. I talked to myself because I'm an only child, damn it, or something (laughs) like that. So that became the running joke of like our our long desk because we have that long desk format. Mm-hmm. So anytime I would do anything or say anything, it was like it was basically my coworkers going in on a joke that I would like I would create. Like Mika's an only child, everyone. She's an only <laughs> child. So it was like this ongoing ongoing thing in the workplace. Even to this day, I, I like just yell at I'm only child. <laughs> only yeah. child. Blame it on being an only child. Yeah, I'm an only child. Sorry, I couldn't get that email out to you. I'm an only child. Yeah, I only care about myself. Yeah. So just a running joke at work. Definitely only child. I don't have only child issues. Okay. (laughs) But I, I definitely understand what you were just saying about that. Yeah. I'm curious to know, when did you think of becoming a comedian? Or when did that, like, what you what you are doing and how you were being, just being, yeah. was actually comedy? Yeah. So, it, so you know, it's, it's interesting because we know each other um, from our working life. And, of course, I started comedy later in life. I never thought anything I was doing was for stand-up comedy. I never, I never considered it. I never wanted to be a comedian. I, you know, I love working in philanthropy, um, you know. I went to grad school for it. It's basically, if you ask me what I was doing on the weekend, I was doing fundraising events. I was always at a charitable, doing something charitable, volunteering. Philanthropy has been my life for, Mm. you know, most of my adult life, essentially. Um, But I did have this humorous personality and I was always, you know, making people laugh or people were always laughing at me. So one day I just decided that like, oh, after I finished grad school, because um, I'm, a, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I was like, what else can I do to make my life more busy after work? Um, I was like, I'll take a comedy writing class and maybe it will help me write. I was trying to write better um, jokes on Facebook, honestly. Oh, really? That is. Oh my goodness. I just 
wanted to write like better Facebook jokes, like because I can't. My, I, we're not. Are we Facebook? We're, we're Facebook friends. I see your stuff. There's always drama on my wall. I'd be saying something <laughs> controversial. Somebody comes. It's just like writing jokes. I just wanted to write more hu- like with more humor, mm. because of course in philanthropy we write a lot. We write a lot of touching, dramatic emails, and like it's always like our goal is to make people cry so they give us money. Essentially, yeah, that's what we yeah. do. We want we want to invoke emotion, so I wanted to invoke a different emotion. So I think I went to um, you know uh, 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 like I think it was Gotham Writers Studio or something like that, and they didn't have any more. Uh, the humor writing course was filled, and they had stand up writing, mm. uh, stand up to. Uh, writing to be a stand-up comedian and I was just kind of like I guess I'll take this class like kind of thing yeah mm. yeah yeah so that's how it started and I did I wasn't during the class I didn't think I was just learning how to write a joke um but the first time I was on stage it was the first time I went on stage after uh, I did my first like we call it type five in the business because mm. that's what they teach you. They teach you how to write a type five. What's a type five? Um, so it's just like five minutes of uh, jokes that make people laugh. So they're constantly laughing. Like, is there at- a structure? Oh, yes. There's tons of structure. There's a... Uh, the classic su- structure is uh, the setup, the pre- the setup, the premise, the punchline, the premise, the setup, and the punchline. Mm. So that's how you write your jokes. And essentially, you're supposed to be making people laugh like every 30 seconds or even shorter than that. But wow. you have to, you're supposed to, when you tell a story or whatever you're saying, it has to be a joke. Um, it's funny, a lot of comedians, I run a lot of mics now. I'm just like, where's the joke? So you'll hear like, <laughs> Anyway, but that's a different thing. You're like, where's the structure? I'm like, where's your? I was like, what's funny about that? Like, there ain't no joke. So that's another thing. The difference between difference between being just funny and the difference between writing a good joke, mm-hmm. um, which I'm still getting better at because essentially I'm a newer comedian. I just mm-hmm. started. I did that um, class um, in 2018. Okay. And I performed my first uh, type five at the end of 2018. And after I stepped off that stage, I was on a high. Wow. Can you tell us about that experience? I want to know the oh. first time you, you know, because you've been making joke all your life. You've yeah, been yeah. making people laugh, but it's a different, it's you know, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am a trained dancer. Oh, so yeah. I grew up performing. I oh, went that's to perform- why you had that, those long, sleek <laughs> lives. I was wondering about that. Okay. But, you know, I grew, so I grew up like training, just mm. like you just said, you know, you, you train for it and then being on stage and there's a particular feeling and there's like, I still have memories of particular times when I've performed. So can you tell us about the first time you stepped on a stage? So I w- it was one of those like, you know, bring your friends and family kind of thing. So we all of us in the classroom, we all had to bring, I don't know, five people or something ridiculous like that. Of course, I brought like <laughs> an army with me. Um, and then like a bunch of people, we you know, we pack. We, I think it was Broadway Comedy Club. That was the first time I ever stepped on stage. And essentially uh, is what we call in the business a bringer show. And everyone comes and you step on stage and we were super nervous. I remember it was it was a classroom of girls. It was funny because we all took the class because we thought we would meet boys because boys do comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so your intention was in, but you had a different intention, though. I wanted to learn how to write, but it was like, oh, maybe there'll be some funny guys here that are cute. Oh, like, you know, okay. in the class, like and it ended up all being women. It was all women. And so it was like we all we literally all thought it was like, why are we all girls taking this class? It's because women, you know, we like to prepare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but essentially we're all in the classroom we went out for drinks before like a drink because we were so nervous I mean mm. like I was so nervous it was the most nerve-wracking time I think I took a I know from public speaking like take a shot of tequila or like you know just a glass of wine just to calm your nerves um so I think we had like three drinks which I would never do now before going on stage 
And then we all perform one after another. I remember going up stage on stage and I perform and it was just like a euphoric feeling, mm. especially when it's over. And once I get on stage, it's done. Like I'm once I get into the joke, once I after I tell my first joke and I get that first laugh, that's a I don't know how I never I've never done crack or anything like that. But I assume it's similar. It's just mm. a euphoric experience. And essentially comedians we go around chasing a high. Like, mm. so that's what we're all doing. We're just chasing highs around the city. But were last. you nervous for the first 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds? Like, wait, like when you were about to say the first one, were you like it's, nervous, like looking around? Is, the, is this going to land? It's right before you get on stage is when like, when, when there's a comedian, they're, they're like, you're next. They go up to you and they always go, you're next. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> so I start freaking out. And then you get on stage and then like you, you're practicing that first line, how you're going to, I, at least I do. I practice like what I'm going to say at that first line. Cause you, if I mess up that first line, I feel like I'm defeated, mm. but I practice that first line over and over again. I just got on stage and I blurted it out and then they laughed. And then the nerves went away. It's like, I practice for this. I'm just going to oh, do my set. So now it's, it's good. It's you're, smooth you're, sailing. You're practice tight five. Yeah. So, I want to know more. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> y'all were drinking. Yes, we were drinking. And I assume you were you were nervous, very nervous. Extremely so. So, they tell you you're next. Yes. And you walk on stage. Mm-hmm. What does the audience look like? So, that's the thing. You can't really see the audience. They look like shadows because all you're looking at is a bright light in front of you. And the reason why we call it the type five is because you only have five minutes to deliver these jokes and they give you a warning at one minute and you really can't go over your time because mm. that's rude and unprofessional. So you're looking at a bright light and you see people are down there. But, um, I was in choir when I was younger and we're always told like, uh, choir to look to the back. So I literally looked to the back of the stage and I was like, I'm not looking at anyone's face. <laughs> like I was, I was, I was nervous. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a scary thing to see all those faces. And then what happened? I told my first joke. You told it. I told my joke and I, I, the, the, something about my voice being like deep or raspy. Cause it is, uh, cause they tell you like, you know, you know, make fun of yourself or whatever. And then people laugh. And then as they laugh, it's like, okay. Cause remember it's, it, it's, it's the premise, the setup, the punchline, like this is all the joke, right? Mm. That your structure. So it's like, okay, that joke worked. And then you move on to your next joke. And then uh, as time going, went on, like two minutes into my set, I just got really comfortable on stage. It was really? almost like, I don't know. I was just like, that's why I realized that like, once you like get the first couple of laughs, like you're so comfortable mm. and then you just pretend like, and then you do start talking to people and like, I don't know, you just start, I don't know. I kind of, I live on stage. Like in a sense, like I just like, I feel most comfortable on the stage. Like wow. uh, that's why I feel more comfortable on stage. Uh, then when people come up to me face to face and they do small talk, I hate that. But like if I'm on stage talking to you, probably because I'm only child and <laughs> I'm in control. And <laughs> Listen to me. I'm talking. I feel very great about that whole experience. <laughs> wow. So that was 2018. That was tw- at the end of 2018, 2018. I did that. And I didn't do comedy again after that until a year later. Why? I thought you were. You were on a high. You were I chasing was on the a high, high. But life. So what happened was, um, so my 
the 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 guy who teaches the class, David LaBrocca. Shout out to David LaBrocca uh, at Gotham Writers. Uh, but essentially, he asked me to come back to do another set, and I was like, "Well, I don't know." He's like, "He's like, here's the thing: you never turn on stage time." And I was like, "Okay, okay, I'm coming back." So I went back to do another show, what have you? But then life happened. I got busy, and like, I don't know. It's just the nervousness of getting into the groove of going to open mics in New York and all these other things. It just didn't occur to me. But I remember that euphoric high, and I was like, mm. I have to get back into this. Mm. So at the end of 2019, I started again going to open mics, started reworking, reworking my um my my type five. Uh, I took another class. It's like a, it was like a more advanced class with a guy named Rick Chrome at the Comedy Cellar. He kind of refined my jokes more, gave me a great great tape, and then I um and then I didn't stop until the pandemic. And then I kind of we kind of ignored the pandemic, honestly. A lot of we didn't ignore it, but um, I think I stopped um, when we got locked down in March. And then um, it was actually Michael Che. He like brought comedy back. Like mm. it was like a weird thing. He did this show. It was right during the Black Lives Matter protests. It was at right at the start of June of 2020. And we were doing a lot of Zoom shows, which yeah, is not yeah. the same. It's not. Uh, it was horrible to do that Zoom comedy stuff. And then Che did a show in LIC in a parking lot. Hmm. And I was like, oh, this is what we're going to do. And all these shows popped up in in um, parks, roofs, anywhere we can, people's backyards. And I just, I've been grinding since. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'm uh, a fairly new comedian, but <laughs> as you I'm out here in the streets. So. Yeah. I see you. I see you on the gram. Every every other day you're posting a some show you're doing or have yeah. done. And you've also traveled across the country doing comedy. This summer I just started traveling to do comedy. Um well I, you know me. I love traveling. Um so there's all these so that the well, I mentioned the tape, right? Um, so that that tape I got of doing like my like better type five, if you will, uh, rewrite because we rewrite a lot. Mm. Um, so um, with that tape, uh, you you essentially you submit to festivals um, around the country here in New York. And you meet other comedians in different markets that you've never met before. And that's exciting. Um, and you travel other places and do comedy. I was doing comedy in L.A. this summer. Uh, I did a festival in Cleveland, Ohio. I've never been to Cleveland. Um, I'm going, I'm doing a Coney Island uh, comedy festival next week here in New York. Um, I'm going to Oakland to do a comedy festival in October. So yeah, it's like, it's, it's a thing. That's, you know, it's kind of yeah. what we do. Yeah. yeah. Do you have <laughs> just, a, do you have a theme for your, your, your comedy? Um, I don't know. I talk about whatever I want to talk about. Um, so I don't know if it's a theme. It's just, I just talk about things I like to talk. I don't think I have a theme. I talk about pop culture a lot. Mm. Uh, of course, I talk about race relations in a certain way. I talk about, uh, uh, actually, all, all every, um, I call it like my base joke. I, it's about being being from Astoria. Being from Astoria. Yeah, being wow, from Astoria. Wow, you're rapping. Yeah, I rap hard. Like, <laughs> I'm a, someone, they were like, uh, Astoria is my religion, essentially. Someone said that to me. <laughs> like, that's her religion. Yeah. Astoria is your religion. One thing you said that stood out to me mm -hmm. um, was that you not only made jokes about other people, but you also made jokes about yourself. Yes. And I, and I think most people can make jokes about other people, but they yeah. can't make about themselves. And I feel like there's something, there's a power in that when you can make fun about yourself, right? Yeah. Was and something healing as well. Um, was that intentional? Um, yes, because essentially... Um, 
self-deprecating humor. You have to be able to make fun of yourself. You have to like, the audience has to be able to relate to you on some level. So you make fun of yourself. And like, what's the most obvious thing about yourself? For me, like, I, I'm going to be talking for five minutes. Like, you, I'm a woman, but my voice is like very, you know, deep and raspy or whatever. So I had to address that at the top, like, before I scared somebody with my voice, like, you know. <laughs> so I talked about like, you know, my voice. I think it's something like... um, Oh, what was the stupid joke? Sorry. I don't say it anymore. So like I forgot about it. I say something like, yes, my voice is just as raspy. And I know it's not raspy in a sexy way. It's more like in a she may have testicles kind of way. Like, I don't know. I jump around the stage, say it like that. And it basically, it's to talk about how I'm constantly being mistaken for a man over the, over the phone, mm. uh, which is true. Like, I'm always like people are like, sir. I'm like, it's ma'am. Like, thank you. Um, but essentially... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the whole joke is uh, basically like I pretend I'm calling someone um, and I and, they, and this was your first joke. This is my first joke. This is why I go and say it's like I pretend I'm calling someone like I do like a ring ring. Yeah. Um, and then someone goes, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't think I can help you. And I go, sir, ma, it's me. What the hell? It's such a stupid joke. <laughs> but people always laugh at that dumb joke. <laughs> Because, like, my mom thinks I sound like a man, too, apparently. <laughs> Would you call her? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was just, like, a stupid, like... I mean, I tell I tell self-deprecating jokes. I tell jokes about... I tell jokes about all... Growing up in a story, I grew up around, around a, a lot of a lot of wiggers. Mm. I, talk, I tell that joke a lot. Mm. Um, just because there is something... So can you tell our audience what a wigger is? Oh, so, so it's a white person that, you know, acts black or, like, fit... Not acts black. Sorry, let me rephrase. It's a white person that perpetuates stereotypes of blackness. Uh, so, like, they embody hip-hop culture. It was, it's very 90s, essentially. But essentially, that's who lives in the story. If you're mm -hmm. white, that's who you, like that's how you kind of operate, especially when I was growing up. Um, so I talk about that because it reminds me of all the kids I grew up with. And for, there was a lot of humor in that growing mm. up because it was, like, being a New York City kid, like, how hip-hop really, like... Hip-hop was our universal language. We were all from, I don't know, various different countries. But we all listened to the same music. We all consumed the same culture. So there was something. And it was it was my culture because mm. I'm a black American. Um, so I, I tell that joke as a baseline joke because it centers all my other jokes. Mm. So when I, when, I, when I start, you know, making fun of white people or start making fun of black people or like whatever, that's it. Or making fun of myself for like not being like the stereotypical black person or growing up in the story even, mm. which is like, there's not many of us. So like there's a small, there's pockets. Yeah there's, yeah, there's pockets of black people in the story, but I didn't grow up in one of those pockets. So mm. that's, maybe there were like a few in my neighborhood. So that's my like anchor joke. Mm. Um, it's about who I am essentially, which I mean, of course, all my humor is going to come from like growing up where you know where I'm from. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a way of you sharing of yourself. Yes, exactly. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um I was also thinking about the work you do, your paid work. Yeah, I mean yeah. I, I feel I like get paid. You, you get paid, sorry. They <laughs> be paying me now. <laughs> <laughs> no. But um your nine to five. Yeah, I my should nine to say. five. Your nine, nine to five. five. Yeah. Um is is philanthropy. Yeah. Both of us work in the field of fundraising and philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And and so much of that is, you know, for a lot of people that is like, oh, you do like whenever you people I tell people what I do, they say, oh, my goodness, you're doing good work. Yeah. You know, you're yeah, helping yeah. people and whatnot. Yeah. So do you see f comedy also as like, do you see a connection between philanthropy and comedy? 
So it's actually, that's a, that's a great question, Yelka. Um, so how did I even get in philanthropy? I'm just going to go take some, a few steps back. So I, I decided to work in the nonprofit sector in college. Um, but like, I don't know, I graduated at a weird time. It was during like the financial crisis or whatever. It was horrible. Um, but essentially, um, during that time, we were all trying to find ourselves during this financial crisis. I yeah. feel, and I, I segued, I always say I had a, I segued into finance uh, briefly. I don't know if you ever noticed this about me. But I, I didn't worked, know that. So I worked in the trading floor at Deutsche Bank for three and a half years. Really? <laughs> I did because... Um, I can't even imagine it. It's it's so funny because <laughs> it's like so different from what we... It's one of the reasons why I got my job at Robinhood. Because of your... They, they, it was like, oh, you have a banking background. I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, wow. Because uh, they hired... Anyway. But essentially... Um, I segued into finance, just like it was on a whim. I had, um, I had been, I came back from India working at Harlem Children's Zone. And like, there was something about working at Harlem Children's Zone, the position I had, I couldn't really afford to like move out of my mom's house and do all these things. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna go back abroad and all this other stuff. So I went to Ecuador, I worked and I came back, I was going to join the Peace Corps. And then I remember I was like hanging out with this older guy, like as a mentor or whatever. And he was like, you're doing too much of this. Like, I'm going to this country to do this and all this other stuff. He was like, stay here make some money decide what you want to do with your life he's like go get a job in finance so I was like what and he was like just go do it he's like you're not making any money doing what you're doing he's like why are you leaving the country again you already left the country twice you already technically you already have that experience mm. get yourself another experience so essentially I started working in finance like um doing assistant work I became a sales sales assistant on um on the equities investment team <laughs> at Deutsche Bank, just like fell, it was like a crazy, I fell into position. Um, so I, but I stayed there for a while. And while I was working there, I kind of like, I don't know, I love Oprah. Um, it's one of my things. That's why I started the podcast. We're done here because <laughs> um, I love self-help. But it was like, I need to establish my why. What is my why? Mm. So at the age of 25, by working on the trading floor, my why has always been, I want to help people and this job doesn't allow me to help anyone. If anything, it's just about a bottom line. It's an empty job. I was happy with the money. Like me and my friends are fine. The Vegas, we're having a great time. But like, it just like, I help people for a living. Hmm. And like, this is not that. So I eventually quit, went to grad school. Yeah, ended up at Robin Hood and yeah. all that. It's philanthropy. Um, but essentially, I look at comedy the same way. Like, especially during the pandemic, people just wanted to laugh. Yeah, and like, they need is, a relief. They need a relief. And this is my other way of helping people, helping people have a good time. So it's not helping people like, you know, what like, you know, Robin has poverty alleviation. I have a lot of jobs where there's like providing capital solutions to communities of color. It's a different form of help, right? Mm -hmm. It's a more immediate form of help than the help I'm able to do in philanthropy. But it, it aligns with my bottom line of why I do what I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's so beautiful when we can um, be able to live our purpose in different ways, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So for me, for a mm -hmm. long time, as you both, we were both fundraisers. <laughs> and for a long time, I felt like that was how I was living my purpose. And most recently, I feel like this podcast is mm. where I'm living my purpose as a storyteller, as a connector. Yes. Right. And also in many ways, I'm, a new name, a new title label I'm taking on is also a healer. Oh, you know, wow, I'm not, I don't have any training in traditional healing methods, but I do think talking and stories yes. are healing. No, and so much of this podcast is bringing forth stories 
And when somebody listens and hears that, it can be a medicine for them. Yes. Right. So um, so I love that you are able to also see comedy as a medicine as uh, for people. You know, no, I mean, because it helps me like I love laughing. So yeah, always makes me feel better. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Another thing I've been thinking about as you talk is your identity as a comedian and how you came to own that identity. Right. Yes. Um, I, I would just quickly share with you, you know my I call myself now freely as a storyteller but mm. I wasn't that wasn't always the case you yeah. know for a long time it was a, a title I'd even see the value in my father called himself a storyteller and when I would be around him I'd be embarrassed and be like no tell other people what other things you do yeah you know so what was that what can you recall the moment you you began to call yourself a storyteller um not storyteller <laughs> that's for me yeah. um but the moment you began to call yourself a comedian and also how did people react people in your family you know you're African we don't come from a culture with certain titles you know people are funny people make jokes yeah but you don't go around calling yourself a comedian yeah so how do they react when you started calling yourself a comedian. No, that's, that's, so at first I had to be comfortable with calling myself a comedian, which is interesting. So uh, essentially um, when I started doing comedy, it was basically all I did. Um, Mm. So like, I mean, I was working of course, but um, you know, doing comedy at night, running around the city, doing these shows and things like that. But it actually wasn't until, um, so last year it was, um, I won a contest, a, a U.S. comedy contest. It was oh. like on Zoom or what have you. Um, so it was funny. Um, one of the part of that contest is you get like representation for a year from like a manager and an agent. They help you with your, your career. And um, I remember talking to my manager. And he was like, he was like, you don't have a comedian anywhere on your social media. <laughs> so he's like, first put your put that you're a comedian on social media. And so I was like, oh yeah, that's right. That's stupid. So I changed my Instagram to be a comedian. Was that easy for you to do? You know, it's so funny because I'm so tied to like the philanthropic sector. And um, you know, you know who we work with. Like yeah. we work with like it's a very stuffy field. I mean, we're like the only black women that even do this. We're like super young. Everyone's like a hundred years old. It doesn't, it's a it's an interesting sector to be in. So I had to grapple with like my professional persona versus like the jokes I want to tell. Mm. Um, so I just had to like, I don't know, I did some like reworking on my social media, not really working it, you know, not any great reworking because mm. my social media is still the same. It always was. Yeah. I was just like, I'm going to, you know, do some configuring to um my last name because if you know my last name you can and my last name is mo now it's mika mo (laughs) but that's a childhood nickname so i've always been called mika mo by um by my friends so it was just like okay i'm just gonna go by this name and um i'm also uh yeah gonna start calling myself a comedian so once i started doing that it's just like oh yeah i'm a comedian so now for the last year or so i've just been a a professional stand-up comedian and like that was a, so I've gotten I had gotten I, before that moment I had gotten paid like maybe forty five dollars to do comedy hmm. right um but when I won that contest it was like a, you win a big pot of money oh wow so I was like it was not a big pot of money for but for a comedian like it was a you know yeah, the yeah, decent yeah. pot of money a significant yeah it was a significant amount of money so I was like you know what I am a comedian and they they paying me so and then like yeah people pay me all the time I mean it's not a lot of money I mean. <laughs> we were getting not paid that much. Actually, in LA, I got paid a lot more. But yeah, I'm a comedian. I make money doing this. I take time doing this. I I, 
you know, sacrifice weekends for this. And that's for the family thing. It's interesting. I don't know. My parents, my parents are, uh, my dad's African, so it's like in my my African family is like she went to Colombia, she can do what she wants to do. <laughs> oh wow! So they give you a pass. They're like, I, as I long kinda, as you got the education, you still have your job. Yes, okay, whatever you do after work, <laughs> nobody cares what you're doing. Like you know what I mean, kind of thing. Nobody cares. It's like okay, you're not was, sacrificing that much. Yeah, it's like okay, you still have your job. It's like okay, what you are you quitting your job? It's like I'm not gonna quit my job until I make as much money as I do doing philanthropy. Yeah, okay, yeah. we don't care though. <laughs> just make money, and then like yeah, it's just the way it is. So as long as I'm making money, like it's fine. How did your mom react? My mom was like, oh. Oh, that's cute, baby. And like she's she roots me on. My mom is a, a abnormally supportive person. She doesn't put any pressure on me uh to do anything. She's just well, she very, has your back. She just has my one. back. She's just like, oh, that's my baby girl. Yeah. yeah. Like she's just coming to my show next Wednesday. Oh. <laughs> she's just, I don't know. My mom is doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't engage herself in like what I'm doing with my life. My dad is kinda like, as long, you you're still working, right? And it was like, <laughs> okay. He doesn't, yeah, just, that's all he cares about. <laughs> so did you think in the process of calling yourself and owning your identity mm-hmm. as a comedian, mm-hmm. did did you start to change how you presented yourself? No, I'm actually still working on that in a sense, because I'm like, what is a comedian? Right. Mm-hmm. Like I literally walk around. It's New York. So we have lots of shows all the time. Sometimes I'm doing two shows a night. Sometimes I'm doing three shows a night. And basically, um, I... I have to get you, I'm, I'm working. So I have to get used to calling myself like, it doesn't change my persona. I'm still silly. Sometimes I f- what I've been noticing is I've been trying to be less silly. Mm. Cause I was like, what well, people think I'm a clown all the time. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's like, I'm not a, a professional clown, but like almost I'm, I'm more aware of like how I'm acting. Cause like, Oh, people's like, Oh, she's a comedian. She's acting like that. Like, no, I've always been outrageous. Mm. Um, so I don't, I'm also more conscious, like I'll be more low key sometimes when I'm in a certain group because I know as soon as people hear I do stand up, they're going to want to joke and I just want to be free. So actually now I just feel more free in front of my like my close friends. And like when I'm meeting people at shows, like it's almost like I have a more calm demeanor Mm. when I meet people because like, I don't know, I just more self-conscious the way I'm acting off stage versus on stage, I might say something inappropriate. Somebody might be like, "Oh, that! Oh, I heard that comment. She said something like this." So I'm just more cognizant of how I'm behaving. Even mm. yeah. the flip side of that, do you think people are also expecting you to be funny? Like, make me laugh. Oh, most definitely. You know? So uh, <laughs> honestly, I, even out of spite, I was like, "I'm not saying anything. I'm not making anyone laugh." But of course, if I'm in a comfortable set, I'm always walking. Around. I'm laughing all the time, saying crazy things. Um, so yeah, people want to make you laugh. I was like, I'm not making you laugh. Get out of my face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. Sometimes when you say you're a storyteller, people are like, expect you to tell them a story. And you're like, no, that's not what. It's I like, do. if you're a banker, give me some money. Like, no, this is not like, we're not doing that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mika. Um, I'm curious to know two moments. Mm-hmm. One moment where you know, you already told us about like the fact that you you were told by a rep- or, or somebody who was going to represent you to like put com- comedian in your thing. But like, when did you feel for yourself that this is just not something I'm able to do, but something I am like this is. I am this. No. Um, so I always mentioned that first time I did comedy, I didn't do it again for until the next year. And it was really hard. The reason why it's because it was really hard to like, 
I, you've never, I'm assuming you've never been to like an open mic. I did. I went to one in the, um, was it open mic? I went to one in the um, comedy cellar. Okay. Yeah, like on West 4th, right? That's where But it, was it an open mic or was it a show? I've, I've been like a few times. I, I think you went to a show. There's no, yeah. <laughs> There's no open mic there. I mean, there might be an open mic there. Yeah. I thought I went to an open mic Did you there. perform? I wasn't performing. Okay. No, but- no, no. <laughs> I, I am not a comedian. Okay. No, but there's different types of open mics. I'm just checking. Okay. Um, because there is a culture of open mics here in the city. Um, and they're, if you don't know them, they're always in like some dirty, dirty club. And it's just like, there's always, for, for especially in New York City, there's a bunch of young white guys. And they're just like, they tell horrible jokes about rape and like anti-Semitism and like, uh, I don't know. Just stupid jokes. Um, that's why I run a BIPOC LGBTQ mic at the tiny cover, but that's a different story. But basically, this whole mic culture, I'm a grown-ass woman. I'm not trying to hang out with a bunch of young white men. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In a dirty room. Um, so <laughs> getting into that groove, but I still have to do it because I have to tell these jokes. Yeah. So getting into that groove of going into these rooms, doing that every night, at first you start doing it a couple of times a week, but then all of a sudden, like you're doing it every single day, then you're booking shows. From, from that moment, moment I was comedian because mm. I was doing the work of being a comedian like people ask me what are you doing it's like I have to go do comedy so it's more like um I had to make a conscious effort mm. to actually work on my craft so once you start working on your craft you are a comedian yeah. so as soon as I started working on my craft I was a comedian I just wasn't calling myself a comedian um on social media because I'm not really. A, I'm a private person, but this is the one thing you can't be private about. Yeah. Yeah. So you've shared now that it started from a young age. You came from a humorous family. Mm-hmm. You were using comedy as a as a tool and as a weapon throughout your life. Yes. You know, <laughs> so um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So. When I took that class, um, of course, I'm a very humorous person, but taking the class and getting on stage, getting that high from being on stage, from that day on, when I got that first high, I was a comedian, right? Because I got a taste of it. Um, But essentially, what people don't tell you about comedy is it's a lot of hard work. Um, So I had to own in on my craft. And I also understood because... I don't know, they call us pandemic comedians because <laughs> <laughs> that's when you, you, because like we, we, you know, like we were the comedians like out in the street, like during the pandemic, essentially. Mm. Um, but during that time period, comedy was so healing. It was even super healing for me. Like it was how I got through the pandemic, watching great comedians here in New York, doing comedy myself here in New York. It just got me. I had the most, I had people like, how was your summer? 2020, 2020. It was amazing. Cause I just, I was just doing comedy and mm-hmm. having this amazing time period uh, of it, of doing comedy. But essentially it's the work of doing comedian. Like every day, like right now when I leave here, I have to go to comedy and I'm hungover and my head hurts <laughs> and I no, I might not be my best for the, and I'll, I'll kill, be fine. Um, but essentially I'm working every day at, at my craft. So it's, it's kind of like, it's who I am now. It's a part of me. Um, it's what I spent the most time on. If people, it used to be like, what do you do after work? You know, you started naming your hobbies and like, what do I do after work? I'm constantly doing comedy. I'm doing comedy during work even. Um, so <laughs> I'm writing all day. So 
it's just it's just who I am now. It's 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 different. Um, yeah. I don't. It's it's weird. There wasn't. I haven't really changed as a person. I just put my efforts towards this more and it's all about getting better and getting feedback from people mm. like how did I perform and the, the one time when I really knew I was a comedian it was it was early days essentially I was in the train station it was right before like we got on lockdown and I was coming out of the train station and this girl came up to me she's like wait you're a comedian I was like I was thinking in my head I was like I'm not who she's thinking about she's like no I saw you last week at XYZ club you're a comedian I was like oh yeah I am a comedian <laughs> she's like you're great it was great seeing you and then I got on the train like I text my friends I was like dude someone called me a comedian wow <laughs> it's like duh you are like it's, it's so it was like one of those aha moments so I was just kind of like oh yeah like yeah, I thought she was talking about somebody else. She was talking about me. So, yeah, from then on. Yeah. yeah. And what is, to you, what's the power of comedy? I do work in philanthropy, and we do spend a lot of time trying to help people and, you know, expose a lot of our job, like what we do, mm-hmm. um, is exposing people to different facts and figures and truths about, um, you know, the world. So they and care. Conditions. Yeah, conditions. So they care about the world. Well, in a sense, I guess a comedian kind of does the same thing. We're just um, packaging it in a joke and sharing it with people. Um, there's power in that. There's power in sharing your perspectives with an audience of strangers and having them laugh at it and agree with it and say, coming up after you up to you after the show and be like, yeah, that's so true. Blah, blah. It's, it's a, it's a powerful thing. It's a human connection thing. Mm. And I think that's what I love about, it. I get the energy from the audience and that, that high I was explaining, it's the energy people are giving to me when they, when they laugh at me, they're giving me their energy. They're giving me their time. And there's nothing more powerful than that. Yeah. And so I feed off of it. Like, I don't know, like, like a desperate only child, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's an only child thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It all goes back to that. It all comes back to that yeah yeah i think sometimes when people think about comedy you know um they think oh it's not there's there's, they don't take it as serious right or Mm -hmm. or when people try to take it like serious people like no well it's supposed to be surface level Mm -hmm. you know what what's your take on that um you know, like comedy is not supposed to be serious serious like it's a joke right Mm -hmm. at the end of the day everything's a joke and i think um it's all about making f- fun of situations, like being lighthearted. There is a, there's a, there's a trick to making something complicated and, uh, you know, controversial, light, lighthearted. Hmm. Um, that that takes a skill, and it it requires you to be sc- serious with your work ethic, hmm. um, in order to be able to make things lighthearted. I know people don't think comedians are serious but like a lot of comedians are really serious people Hmm. Um, because you do have to in order for a joke to be funny it has to be true but it's like what is your truth Hmm. like what is your truth interpreted by you and that's some people talk about a lot about cancel culture all this blah 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 blah, and all these kind of things but when you actually think think about the jokes that people are saying that they're saying they're being canceled for is because some people don't think that's their truth. Like some people don't think what you're saying about this marginalized group is true. It's based off a stereotype. So in order for things to be funny to people, it kind of has to be truth. And that's to me that there's nothing more, um, I don't know, like powerful than the truth. 
So there is a power in comedy because it is a way to share information truthfully of like this particular comedian's point of view. It's like, mm. and it's funny, the audience responds to it if they also think it's funny and it's also true for them. It's like this human language in mm. a sense. Um, I don't know. I, I just find that a wonderful thing. So like people have never taken me seriously. I told you the story about that girl at work. She was just like, why is she, Tamika, telling me uh, recapping a meeting and making fun of people's voices? Because like, it's funny, but like I've, I've never, I've always been considered a joke, so eh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so Mika, one thing I do like to ask all of my guests mm-hmm. is what's their practice of self? Because so much of this podcast is about um, understanding ourselves, knowing ourselves and understanding our infinite capacity to change, to transform and create the life and world we want. Mm-hmm. So what is the practice or practices that you do to connect with yourself? Um, I spend a lot of time, uh, I like to spend a lot of time alone writing. Mm. Um, that's always been something that I've done. Um, being a child of therapy, as you, <laughs> as you mentioned, I learned how to journal very young. I've always had a diary. Um, so it's interesting now. I don't, journal like I used to I just write jokes Mm -hmm. um so a lot of it is just writing my thoughts down um being by myself it's something for me that alone time is very special so in New York City you know you can get super busy your days can be yeah um so actually crafting out one day just for me I'm not talking to anybody I'm not going outside I'm not working I'm not doing anything it's usually a Sunday or I'll, I'll try to do it um, a day. It's usually one weekend day mm. and then one day after after work, um, which is hard with comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But um, it's been even harder when you're getting, um, we have shows all the time. But what I decided to do even last month, because I couldn't find a day to myself, I took two weeks off of comedy at the end of August to just like be by myself and to not perform and to function. And now I've I've come back recharged and I'm ready to do it all over again until I run myself ragged. (laughs) (laughs) I'll probably just take another week off. Yeah. 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 Do you sometimes give yourself, I'm just curious when you're writing, give yourself any prompts? No, I, I, so what I do is I write, I I usually have, I'm an extrovert, so I get, I get inspired by other people. So I write down my funny thoughts in the middle of the day when I'm out with friends or whatever. And then essentially I have all these rambling of thoughts and I just write, try to write jokes out of them during my writing time. Yeah. That's cool. I love that. I love that because you're, you're taking in what, um, what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. then you're being able to distill it and bring something out. To, to share again with others. Most of the jokes are bad, I will say. <laughs> but those jokes that do hit, yeah, I, I kind of write them out and then test them out at open mics. And then if they're good, they make it to a show. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe you want a, a moment from this podcast. So make Maybe. It to one, yeah. one you never know, Yelka. <laughs> this has been so much fun, Mika, yes. um, to just have you here to share to tell stories, to laugh. I've laughed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I'm just so grateful for this opportunity to first, again, just to do this in person. It's, yes. it's, it's a blessing truly mm-hmm. for me because, you know, the year that we've had, Ugh. you know, or the past two, two years, two years we've had, two years. you know, to be in a place where we can be in person, mm-hmm. be this close and talk and eat and share is, 
is a beautiful thing and a blessing because not everybody got to see it. That's true. I will. Yes. A lot of people passed away here in Queens. Mm -hmm. Even we were at the, the epicenter. Yeah, we were the epicenter of the pandemic. So I'm grateful for this time as well. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here. Um, so where can our audience find you? You can find me on Instagram at Mika Social. That's M-E-K Social, right? Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, though I'm not that active. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll tweet more. I got to get on Facebook. <laughs> you cannot find me on Facebook because I'm problematic there and I like to be problematic. Uh, but please, um, yeah, like me on Instagram, Mika Social, M-E-K-A uh, Social, the word. Same thing on Twitter. Um, and also um, like and subscribe to my podcast, We're Done Here. Um, and I also have a website, uh, it's a book, mikamo.com, and you can see all my upcoming shows here in New York and around the country. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. When I was especially diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which... Thank you for listening to this episode of Kume Turning Point Diaries. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and review, and don't forget to share with your loved ones. Also, in order to get notified of any of our latest episodes, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on our socials at Turning Point Diaries. DRC Jaye is the technical director of this episode. This episode was produced by Kume House and the AMBC. My name is Yonka Kamara. I'm the creator and host of this podcast. Kume, until next time. Theme music by Exile Dynamics featuring Mark Box. Mark Box.